Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 7, Episode 10. In the last episode, I wrapped up while still working through Joshua Chapter 10. It's in this chapter that Joshua leads the Israelites to victory over the five allied kings of Canaan. In that episode, I covered the city of Lachish. I had previously covered Hebron, Jarmuth, and Eglon, and I'm saving Jerusalem for a later date. These Canaanite cities were defeated on the day Joshua commanded the sun to stand still. I also covered the lost book of Jasher, and what little is known about the places of Makeda and Deber. If you missed that episode, you should really go back and give it a listen. In the middle of these places is a city, our region, known as Gezer, the subject of this episode. And with that, let's get started. In Joshua 10, the book's namesake and the Israelite army were attacking the city of Lachish. While attacking the city, King Horam of Gezer came up to aid his fellow Canaanites. Right away, you should see the contextual clue that speaks to the location of Gezer, at least relative to Lachish. It was at a lower altitude, downhill, likely towards the coast. More specifically, archaeologists think it was at the same site as an abandoned Arab village known as Abub Sesha. As for the name of Gezer itself, sometimes you will see it rendered as Tel Gezer or in Arabic Tel El Jazeri. Most of these indicating it was built on top of a hill, a tell. In this case, in the foothills of the Judean mountains, about halfway between Jerusalem and Tel Aviv, meaning it's about 19 miles, 30 kilometers to the northwest of Jerusalem. This placed it on a trade route that passed through the valley of Ailon, essentially between the coast and the central portion of Canaan. More on what that meant in a minute. In the Old Testament, like I mentioned just a bit ago, King Horam of Gezer made the trip up to Lachish to help their now kingless city defend itself against the Israelites. When he got there, the king was slaughtered along with his troops. What's unclear at this point was if it was just the expeditionary force or if the Israelites then went on to attack and defeat the entire city. All we're told is that Joshua struck down the king and his people, leaving no survivors. Joshua 16 does tell us that the Canaanites who lived in Gezer were not driven out. Is this the city or the region? It's much less than clear. Later in Joshua, the city, along with the surrounding pasture land, became a Levitical city. So, how to piece all of this together? Likely, the Israelites defeated the king and his army. This left the city intact, but weakened. As the Israelites began to control more and more Canaanite territory, the city and region around Gezer came under their control. But the people who lived there, at least some of them, remained. In the next few hundred years, from Joshua through the Judges, then to King David, Gezer would be mentioned but mostly as a geographic reference. Like in 2 Samuel, when David struck down the Philistines from Geba all the way to Gezer. 
That all changed in 1 Kings 9. Here, we're told that the Egyptian pharaoh went up and captured Gezer. When he did, he burned it down. But he wasn't done. He then had the Canaanites who lived in the city killed. Why would he do this? His daughter was marrying King Solomon, and the pharaoh gave the captured and burnt city to Solomon as part of his daughter's dowry. Solomon then rebuilt the city. And this leaves a begging question. If the city in the time of Joshua was assigned to the Levites, but was later conquered by the Egyptians and given to the Israelites, what happened in the years in between? Unfortunately, the text of the Old Testament doesn't tell us. And as for this unnamed Pharaoh, it's thought he may have been Siamun, part of the 21st dynasty, who ruled during the Third Intermediate Period. Siamun is thought to have occupied the throne between about 986 and 967 BC. Though, do note that this identification of the Pharaoh is disputed, mostly because Solomon isn't believed to have assumed control over Israel until 970 BC, so their reigns didn't overlap much. Instead, the Pharaoh may have been Shoshek I of the 22nd dynasty, and still in the Third Intermediate Period. This pharaoh ruled between 943 and 922 BC, meaning the first 12 years of his reign overlapped with Solomon. He may have also been the pharaoh of the Old Testament, who sacked Jerusalem. Though in 1 Kings 14, he's named as Shishak. In that chapter, he loots the city, taking with him the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house, everything. He also took away all the shields of gold that Solomon had made. Of course, there will be much on this in the future, but for now, I need to get back to the city of Gezer. Essentially, after King Solomon, there were a few other mentions, but they returned to a strictly geographic context. And before moving on, There's one other thing of note. Around the area of the site thought to be the city, carved stones have been found. And the engravings on these stones tend to be a combination of Hebrew, Greek, or Aramaic. What they are engraved with are the words boundary of Gezer, making them, of course, boundary stones. They also have the name Akius, among others, on them and they date to sometime around the 1st century B.C., meaning it was well after the Old Testament period. That, of course, would explain the Greek language on the rocks. As for boundary stones, don't forget the prohibition in Deuteronomy 19 for moving boundary markers. In that case, almost always stones. As for these specific stones, they're worth a minute or two. So far, 13 boundary stones have been identified near the Tell, with a distance ranging from just under 650 feet, about 200 meters, to as far away as over a mile, nearly two kilometers. The first ones were discovered in the 19th century AD. So, in terms of relative history, they're recent. And it's these stones that led to the positive identification of the Tell as the biblical Gezer. The current thinking is that the stones marked either the boundaries between private land, 
or demarked the line between what was city and private land. Ten of the thirteen have at least two languages inscribed. Among these, they all have Greek, with the other language being either Hebrew or Aramaic. Naturally, this indicates they were placed, or at least inscribed, when the Greeks controlled the region, post-Alexander the Great. As to more exact dating, opinions vary and date to as late as when Herod governed. I lean towards the later Herod date, as some of the stones bear the same names as powerful land-owning families found in separate Herodian records. And that's it for the biblical text. Which gets me to the outside record, it means I need to back way up. But before I do, I also need to point something out. Most of the outside record of Gezer's history comes from two sources. The first are mentions in Egyptian records. I covered the hows and wares of these records extensively in my months-long dive into Egyptian history. The other source are the many archaeological excavations in and around Gezer. So many excavations that the city and the area surrounding it is widely believed to be the most dug-up area in all of Israel. There's a lot there, meaning I have much to cover. Archaeologists currently posit that the settlement in the city dates back to the end of the 4th millennium BC, but to call these settlements is being a bit generous. In reality, in that period, the people living there would use caves, some natural, some cut by man. Either way, they lived in these caves, literal cavemen, and not as far back as you would think. If the end of the 4th millennium B.C. means, pick a year, and I'll pick 3200 B.C., this would place it only about 1,000 years before Abraham immigrated to the region, meaning that Abraham was just as close in years to these cave dwellers as he was to King David, give or take. Given the tools in use at the time, the cave dwellers were smack dab in the middle of the Stone Age, Fast forward to the early Bronze Age, and the development had significantly advanced. Out of the caves and into houses. A settlement that at some point in this era had a water distribution system on the tell. This water system consisted of a tunnel going down to a spring, and is similar to those found in Jerusalem, among other regional cities. But they had no real fortifications, which was to their detriment as at some point in the middle of the 3rd millennium B.C., so around 2500 B.C., the small village was destroyed and almost immediately abandoned. What's unclear at this point is what destroyed it, or who. Something natural, like an earthquake or fire, or perhaps an invading force. The archaeological record isn't clear enough to lead to any conclusive conclusions the abandonment would last for several centuries. And while the exact dates are rather ambiguous, the reoccupation would be in the general period when Abraham was settling somewhere of what was likely a day or two's walk to Gezer. As the 3rd millennium changed to the 2nd BC, Gezer would continue to grow to the point that it became a major city in the region. And the primary reason for this growth was clear. It was on the trade route that I mentioned before. 
the one running from the coast to central Canaan. This was in the same period that agriculture took off, as did sea trade. The Gezer economy benefited from both of these, and it wasn't a single trade route, but was on several roads, roads leading between Egypt and Syria, Anatolia and Mesopotamia, and the road to Jerusalem and Jericho. At this point, and possibly owing to its previous destruction, or to the general trend towards armed mass conflict, or to the wealth contained in the city, perhaps for one of those reasons, or something different entirely. As the city grew, it was also fortified by a wall. Inside the walls, besides the usual housing, there was also a Canaanite religious shrine. More on that in a bit. As for the defensive structures, what's been uncovered so far is rather impressive, especially for that period. There were actually two separate walls, an outer and an inner. The outer wall, due to its design, is usually referred to as a rampart and was about 16 feet, 5 meters tall. Its construction was of alternating layers of dirt and chalk and was covered in plaster. The inner wall was about 13 feet, 4 meters wide, and significantly taller. It was made of large stone blocks and was complete with towers. At one corner was the gate to the city, nestled between two towers. The gate itself was constructed from wood, but as good as this was, it wasn't enough. In the middle of the 2nd millennium BC, the city was destroyed by fire, as evidenced by a destruction layer in the soil on the tell. This was about the same time that the Egyptian pharaoh Thutmose III was campaigning through Canaan, and not a political campaign, but a military one. Thutmose III ruled during the 18th dynasty, which was during the New Kingdom. He was on the throne between about 1479 and 1425 BC. In fact, he is mostly known for his several successful military campaigns in Canaan, so this connection makes a great deal of sense. This would have also been when the Israelites were living for the 400 or so years in Egypt. And there's additional evidence of an Egyptian connection to the fire that led to the city's destruction. Thutmose had a temple built at Karnak, and an inscription in that temple refers to Gezer. This inscription is the oldest non-written reference to the city. Also found in dating to this period is a calendar. It's a plaque that contains text appearing to be either a student's memory exercise or used in the collection of taxes from farmers. Another possibility is that the text was a song listing the months of the year according to the agricultural seasons. And those are drastically different theories indicating that the proposed uses are speculative. It did yield insight into something else, too. And that's the language of the time. Shortly after the destruction at the spear tips of the Egyptians, and as seen in the Armana letters, the leader of Gezer swore his loyalty to the Egyptian pharaoh. These letters, which I've covered numerous times, reflect correspondence between outlying regions, primarily Canaan, and the controlling government back in Egypt. The clay tablets date to the 14th century BC, 
and were uncovered in Egypt. The trove includes ten letters from four different kings at Gezer. All are from a period of about 20 years. There are other artifacts from about the same period that were uncovered at Gezer itself. These include several pottery vessels and a collection of cylinder seals, seals of the type to mark clay tablets as official correspondence. There's also a large scarab with the cartouche, which is the pictogram of Egyptian pharaoh Amenhotep III. This should all be making more sense now. As for a scarab, and this points to how things change over time, these were amulets and impression seals, and seals meaning like a cylinder seal, and they tended to resemble beetles, and not just any beetle, but a dung beetle. You didn't see that one coming. There also have been several uncovered skeletons from this period. All of this seems pretty conclusive, that it was the Egyptians who raised the city. I'll get back to the Egyptians in a minute, but need to spend just a bit of time on what the culture of the city was like during this period. It's assumed the city remained strong economically while it was controlled by the Egyptians. While leaders and allegiances may change, trade routes tend to remain static for longer periods. But trade isn't the only facet of a culture. Religion is, too. During this period, Gezer was fully engulfed in Canaanite polytheism. On the northern part of the Tell, the ruins of what are believed to be a temple have been uncovered dating to about 1600 BC. More specifically, a row of ten large standing stones, all oriented in a north-to-south manner. And these are not small rocks. Instead, the largest is about 10 feet, 3 meters tall. Found in the middle of the ten is an altar-type structure, along with a large square stone basin. The basin is thought to serve a sort of drink-offering purpose, but that's largely speculation. As for the ten separate, distinct stones, some speculate that each one represented a different Canaanite city, or perhaps a different deity. The proponents of the city theory think that each stone was erected to symbolize a treaty Gezer had with another city, and the religious rituals performed in the basin were meant to symbolize the renewed commitment each location had with Gezer. Overall, the size of the stones, and that there are so many, is rather unique to Gezer, which is why there is so much speculation. To be clear, other standing stones are found throughout the region. It's just those in Gezer are more prominent and numerous. This, too, is thought to indicate the relative prosperity found within the walls of the city. Beneath this monument is a double cave, but this is currently thought to have no direct connection to the religious site. Back in Gezer, and while it was still controlled by the Egyptians, a new city wall was built, about the same size as the earlier one, but constructed further out thought to indicate that the city had grown. For the period, and in the immediate surrounding area, it was rare for cities under the control of the Egyptians to build a new wall. This is believed to indicate the city was of particular strategic importance to the Egyptians. About the same time, and on a high point of the tell, a palace was built. This was probably the residence of the king, a.k.a. the Egyptian governor. 
and this was likely the peak years for the city, as sometime in the next century, so in the 1200s BC, a victory stele from Merneptah depicts the defeat of Gezer. This is where it gets interesting and parallels something seen in the biblical text. Merneptah was an Egyptian pharaoh of the 19th dynasty, meaning he too was in the New Kingdom. He ruled between 1213 and 1203 BC. Where this parallels the Old Testament is that he mentions his victory over Gezer, meaning but not said that the Egyptians lost control over it at some point between the Armana letters in his stele. But there's no uncovered Egyptian record documenting their loss. And there's something else to this. Recall way, way back when I covered the Israelite exodus from Egypt, there are many researchers who think it never really happened because it's not found in any Egyptian records. Like most societies, especially those ruled by kings or other various forms of dictators, the official records rarely record the bad news. After all, that's extremely dangerous for the continuation of rule. Just as true then as it is today. Just something else to consider. All of this was around the time the Israelites crossed the Jordan and began what was likely a several years long conflict to capture Canaan. So, to triangulate this, Gezer was prosperous, had a large wall, and as possibly evidenced by the ten large stones, allied with other cities in the region. It could have aligned with them to the point of rushing to assist an ally who's defending against an invasion. Back in Gezer during this period, the city appears to have declined as their population diminished, with no clear indication pointing towards the cause, at least not in the historic record. But the city wasn't completely abandoned. If you weave the Old Testament narrative into the overall story, this could be when they were defeated by the Israelites, but the people weren't driven out, and the city became a residence for the regional Levitical priests. Certainly a possibility. In the 12th and 11th centuries BC, so towards the end of the period of the Judges, and as the various tribes united under Saul in Gezer, a large building with many rooms and numerous courtyards was built. This is believed to have been a palace complex, likely the home of the local leader. Also uncovered from the period are wheat-grinding stones. That's not that surprising, given the reliance in the period on local agriculture for food. Pottery from the time shows local and Philistine influences. Also not surprising. And lining up with the biblical narrative, that the Canaanites were not driven out. Fast forward a bit past Saul and David, and maybe even Solomon for that matter, as the outside record is a bit quiet in these years. Which gets me back to the Egyptian record. At the Temple of Amun in Tanis, which is of course in Egypt, there is a fragmentary triumphal relief scene believed to be related to the sack of Gezer. This Temple of Amun dates to the early 1st millennium BC. It depicts an Egyptian pharaoh smiting his enemies with a mace. And this pharaoh is believed to be either Siamun or Shoshak, and the one potentially referenced in 1st Kings. There's another clue in the broken description. 
and by broken, meaning pieces are missing, so the illustration is incomplete. What is visible and telling are the weapons the Egyptian leader is wielding. The first is a mace, which isn't surprising. The second, though, is different. It's an unusual, especially for Egyptians, double-bladed axe. This axe has a flared crescent-shaped blade, which is more similar to Aegean-influenced axes from the period than the Canaanite weapons. This has led researchers to propose that the depicted defeated Egyptian enemy were the Philistines, possibly related to the Sea Peoples, hence the Aegean influence. And these could have been the same people defeated in the Book of Kings. Though other researchers think the depiction could be made up from whole cloth and therefore have no basis in history. A different relief likely shows that the Neo-Assyrians, when ruled by King Tiglath-Pileser III, siege Gezer around 735 BC. The siege would tend to indicate its wall was still intact. When the Greeks controlled the region in their post-Alexander world, Gezer was fortified by the Maccabees and was part of the independent Jewish Hasmonean dynasty. Jump forward to the era of Josephus, who wrote of a city named Gadara as one of the five regional administrative capitals in the Roman-controlled region, though this could have been a different city entirely. After this, the city was largely abandoned with control shifting to other regional cities. And that provides me with a good stopping point for this week's episode. Join me next week when I'll pick up in Joshua chapter 10. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week.